I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely still in holiday mode. Um, I'm still kind of winding up to, to really get stuck into this year. And I suppose, um, you know, at the start of the year, it's, it's a time to reflect on what was, you know, the, the year that's been. It's a time to think about, you know, New Year's resolutions. We sort of are anticipating changes and, and looking forward to how we want this year to be. Um, you know, even with the church, we're looking at having Vision Sunday because we're thinking about where we're going as a body. We're thinking about what we're doing and, and our approach to this year. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at at this stage. I'm still in this, this space of being, uh, anticipating and waiting for changes and waiting for things to happen, but still not quite fully engaged with what's necessarily going on right now. And that's kind of where this message comes from, this, this space of, I guess, a bit of uncertainty and a bit of waiting and expectation. And how I want to um, sort of, well, well, what I want to discuss tonight is, I mean, it can be explained in so many ways, but the way that I want to explain it is through seasons. And through, that that's sort of the best picture that I've got of it. This idea that there are times and there are changes and there are journeys and there are things that we go through or seasons that we go through and that these um, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss that as we go along. Think about a tree, for example. A deciduous tree that loses its leaves during, you know, autumn and winter. I find it incredible that this tree, you know, say an, say an oak tree, a hundred years old, each, each autumn, it loses every single leaf that it's made that year. Every single leaf that it's, that it's created and, and been sustained by, dies and falls off this tree and it stands there in winter naked and bare and dormant and then comes spring, it buds and it blossoms and once again it grows and then it loses every single leaf it made the next autumn. What a process, what what a strange cycle that those trees go through and yet the trees somehow flourish and grow. They don't just stay stagnant and sort of never actually, you know, one step forward, one step back. These trees are actually able to increase and expand and flourish despite or because of the seasons. There's a sort of embracing of seasons that they do as opposed to uh, resisting. They're able to actually grow through those. Also with seasons, the physical seasons, there's such a regularity and predictability to them. You know, we know in 365 days we'll once again be in summer, if you can call this summer. We know that before then we'll go through autumn, then there'll be winter, then there'll be spring, and once again we'll be in summer. There's such a cycle and a rhythm to those seasons. And what I want to do is start to draw some parallels to perhaps the seasons that we go through spiritually or emotionally or relationally or in our careers. Um, hey, Mike, did you get that YouTube clip? Okay, cool. We'll come back to that. I guess, you know, these seasons can take um, various forms. For example, I was just realising today that Laura and I have lived in Wellington for four years and we've lived in four flats. And just, you know, how that changes, you know, that was first living alone in Baden Road and then living with Simon and Emma for two years in Kilburnie. 
then living with four single guys in Johnsonville, and now we're back to living by ourselves in Hittai. So there are seasons even just in terms of where we live and how we live, in terms of careers and study and finances and children and relationships and marriage, and how you are, we are in different seasons. It's pretty crazy, eh? Just how dramatic that changes from season to season and how they, those trees, like I said, can actually grow and flourish. They're not one step forward, one step back, but they actually grow through those seasons. Another way that we could picture this kind of same theme is, uh, the connectedness or the, the relationship that seems to exist between death and life, death and new birth. Um, let me explain. There's, I'll read this excerpt from a book that I'm reading at the moment. Uh, it's from a guy called M. Scott Peck. The pain of giving up is the pain of death, but the death of the old is the birth of the new. The pain of death is the pain of birth, and the pain of birth is the pain of death. For us to develop a new and better idea, concept, theory, or understanding means that an old idea, concept, theory, or understanding must die. Birth and death seem to be but different sides of the same coin. Jesus himself said the same thing, or more or less, in John 12:24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This picture of new life coming through the death of something else. To put that into a bit of a tangible example, I've got some friends, James and Lydia, who are moving to Auckland in a few weeks. They're from our life group. You know, it's really sad for us, but it's really exciting for them because they're moving into some really awesome job opportunities up there. But for them to live in Auckland, they need to leave Wellington. Obvious, simple, but there's a death of something. There's a releasing of something, living in Wellington, a releasing of their involvement in this church and in our life group in order that they may take up the new exciting opportunities that await them in Auckland. There's a death or a a releasing of something in order that they may embrace and take up something new. Do you follow? So there's a change, there's a transition, there's a season, there's a journey, there's a process that's, that's happening there. I remember the same thing with uh, when Laura and I decided to move to Wellington. We um, got married in Palmy and we lived there for a few months. And then there was um, some opportunity to move to Wellington for Laura's job. It was going to be really good for her training and for me to get into web and design. It was going to be better in Wellington than Palmy. But my family were up in up in Palmy or in the area. I was really connected to uh, to the church that I was at there. I was I had a lot of involvement there. We had friends and family. We had jobs. It was way cheaper to live. There were good things about where we lived. We weren't unhappy with what with what we were doing there. And we we decided to come down to Wellington for a day just to um, sort of I guess visualise if we could imagine ourselves in Wellington. And then and we drove around some suburbs and then we. Um, got some ice cream and sat on the waterfront and we sort of tried to nut it out. And we went through these pros and cons and we, you know, tried to rationalise this decision. But we got to a bit of a deadlock because at the end of the day it wasn't really a rational decision. We just kind of sat there in silence for a bit and then I was just like, yep, we're moving. And it was just it was just a decision 
because it was there had to be a releasing of something. There had to be a releasing of where we were at, the position we had, the place that we were at. You know, I'm talking sort of, you know, abstract, the position that we held with friends and within our, our workplaces and in my church. There had to be a releasing of that in order that we could embrace something new, in order that we could pick up something else. There had to be something that was let go or, you know, died in order that we could experience something new. And when it comes to change, there's often a tendency, isn't there, to resist and to freak out, to abort, to just pull back. We don't seem to always love change. We can often be quite freaked out about it instead. But change, like the seasons, is inevitable. Winter is coming. Yes, ha, 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 ha. Little pop reference. Um, you know, but, I mean, I would say winter is coming to Wellington, but it seems it's already here anyway. And the seasons we know, you know, especially as Wellingtonians, that, you know, you prepare for a Wellington winter. And I don't mean to sound doomsday and all very, you know, heavy, but there are seasons in our lives, and I think we are naive and immature if we don't expect them or if we don't think they exist. I think we are childish if we expect 24-7 sunshine in our lives. And clearly the patterns through nature, through narratives in the Bible, through my own testimony, through many of your testimonies, is that that is not the case. That 24-7, 365 days a year summer is not the intention that God has for us. Speaking of people who didn't like change, um, the Israelites. <laughs> they uh, they were um, enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and uh, they were obviously not being treated well and they were calling out to God for him to rescue them. And he did. He answered their prayer through Moses and Aaron, performing many signs and wonders, and Pharaoh eventually let them go. Then God's presence was visibly with them. He appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and he led them into the desert, where he daily provided food for them and even cleansed water sources that they may drink. He even provided quail for them to catch and eat meat when they wanted meat. God was with them. And God had promised that he would deliver them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of prosperity and abundance and blessing. He had taken them from slavery and was journeying them to that promised land. And this is from Exodus 16, 1-3. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. That was their response. In Numbers 14, 1-4, um, I think there are some references. Oh. Hey, Mike. There some, Michael, there, are some, oh, there you go. There we go. Cool. Um, if only we had died in Egypt, or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us into this country, only to have us die in battle? 
our wives and our children will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. That was their response. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. What? Now, they had gone through a huge cultural change. They were in 400 years in in Egypt. They were not, they hadn't moved from there. They couldn't, they were slaves. They were kept there. And now all of a sudden God had completely changed that and them as men, women, children, old, you know, old and young, livestock, possessions, they were on the move as an entire nation. They were now nomads without a home, without a place to rest their head. They were moving and they were camping. Big change. Big change. That would have been unsettling. That would have been unnerving. They were going into lands that they had never seen before. It would have been scary and it would have been unnerving and unsettling. But they totally failed to see what God was doing. He was moving them from slavery into the promised land, into blessing and abundance. And they freaked out. They resisted that change. They resisted that journey. It's, they had a bad case of the good old days. Now, you know, I'm not quite old enough to really sort of hark back to the good old days. I do sometimes. But, you know, I remember as a kid one time actually getting upset, like crying, when my parents were having this good old yarn about the good old days. Because I remember saying, aren't these good days too? You know, they were obviously probably just talking about lollies and, you know, two-cent loaves of bread and, I don't know, just ridiculous, ridiculously cheap things. And, you know, I don't, that's, you know, that's not such a bad thing. But in Ecclesiastes 7.10, the writer says, Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. We're actually warned against the dangerousness of harkening back to the, the good old days, to wishing for what was instead of looking forward to what God has for us. And the Israelites clearly had a bad case of the good old days, where they were clearly yearning for things like slavery, <laughs> like slave masters. That's how much they feared, and that's how much they had a case of the good old days of not seeing what God was doing. Land flowing with milk and honey or slavery? Clearly they hadn't quite got it. Clearly they didn't have trust. Clearly they were more worried, you know, they were freaking out. And what happened to those Israelites? They didn't enter the promised land. That generation that complained and asked that they would be go back to, to Egypt and said they would be better to die in Egypt than to be in the wilderness, they didn't get to the promised land. Instead, God caused that nation to wander for 40 years so that anyone who was 20 years or older at that time would die in the desert instead of entering what God had, um, had, had for them, the promised land. And instead it was their children that took that inheritance because they were waiting, because they were wanting to return to Egypt instead, because they missed the point. Don't abort the process. Don't quit the journey. My, my pastor used to say, don't get off the train when you're in the tunnel. Perhaps the most tempting time if you're, you know, it's all dark and it's scary in the tunnel, but don't get off the train in the tunnel. That's the worst part to get off. 
Don't abort the process. Don't quit the journey. Allow God to complete the work that he's doing in you. Allow him to complete that good work that he, sorry, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Hold on to that. Know that God is wanting to build character within you. Don't abort the process. Imagine a tree that gets to winter and it's like, no, nah, that's it. I've lost everything. Fine then. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna uproot myself and die. That's not what a tree does, is it? Let's, let's give the tree a bit of personality. Instead, the tree has patience and perseverance. And the best thing of all is the tree has hope in springtime. Because it knows that spring will come and it will bud and it will blossom and it will fruit and it will flower and flourish. It has hope in that springtime. Despite losing all its leaves, all that it's worked for, it doesn't give up, but instead has hope and perseverance waiting for that springtime. And we know that, the, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8:28. For us to have that perseverance, we need to have faith in a good God. We need to trust that he is a God that is worth trusting. And if you were here for my, my last sermon, I talked about sort of the second day and I talked about how, you know, imagine the disciples when Jesus died because we know he was risen on the third day, but that means he wasn't risen on the second day. We also know that the way the disciples reacted to when Jesus did rise again even though he had alluded to the fact that he would be risen, they hadn't quite got it, and they were surprised when they saw him alive, meaning on the second day they really thought he was gone. And they would, they would have been despairing, heartbroken, hurting, confused, angry, and grief-stricken, thinking that their saviour, this man who had performed many miracles and and confounded the wise and, and challenged the religious leaders on that second day would have been such a gut-wrenching, terrible day. But then if um, if you listen to the end of that message, what I was really wanting to talk about was how God is a God of the third day. God is Our God is a God who renews, who restores, who replenishes, who rejuvenates, who resurrects. Our God is a God of the third day. We see that from his character... What sort of world did he create, if you look at Genesis? A perfect, blissful world with no sickness, no pain, no death. That's the world he created. Look at Revelation. What is he going to restore it to? He will wipe away every tear. He will turn sorrow into dancing. That's the world that he will restore. So we see God's character in Genesis through to Revelation. We see that he is a God of the third day of the resurrection of the resolution and the redemption and the rejuvenation of the spring. That's who our God is. Know that he is trustworthy and know that he is good. Hosea 6 verse 3. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Our God is a God of the springtime.
And what I'm hoping for me for this year, as I look forward to it, as I anticipate these these changes and, and, and what I expect, but also what I don't expect, is that I can embrace the season. Be they winter or summer. I pray that I may be able to embrace what it is that God wants to do in me, to embrace that journey through wilderness if necessary, in order that I may see that promised land or that springtime that he has for me, instead of aborting the, the process, quitting the journey, jumping off the train in the tunnel. I pray that I would have the perseverance and the courage and the confidence in my God that I may see that springtime that he has for me. Because challenge is good, right? We used to live in Baden Road in Hittitai and, and we're now living close to there again. And I often finish my runs by running up to the top of this road. It's a no exit and it's just the road goes up this hill. The road ends and the path zigzags back and forth up this hill, you know, typical Wellington styles. And I often just sort of finish my run by blasting up to the top of that. And by the top of it, I'm lightheaded and I'm heaving and I'm like, <gasps> it's hard work. But it's the point. I don't, I don't finish my run with a black downhill. That's not the point. The point is the challenge. Last year I worked on a project at work and it was hard work. It was a tight time frame. It was an important client. It was a big site and it was, it was hard work. And I put in a lot of overtime. I even missed some really important family events because I needed to prioritize work. But you know what? It was the best project I've worked on. It was the most enjoyable. It was the one that I loved the most. Doing a crossword, I often do crosswords. I would not be interested in a crossword that gave me clues like, what colour are fire engines? What is New Zealand's national bird? What number comes after three? I would not be interested in that type of crossword. I enjoy the challenge of running up to the top of Baden Road so that I'm heaving and breathless at the top. That project that I worked on was good because it was intense and there was focus. The crosswords I enjoy... When I feel like a boss is when I, you know, get the obscure words. You know, that's the ones that are good. That's the challenge. The challenge is the enjoyment. The enjoyment is the challenge. We know this. And, and you know, running, crosswords, project work, that might not apply to you at all. But I'm sure you've all come across times when it's been the challenging thing, the difficult thing, which has brought you the most satisfaction and the most fulfillment. Making that a bit more serious, you know, spreading beyond hobbies and sports. I know that in my own life, as you would have heard in my last sermon if you were here, some of the hardest times in my life, the most despairing times, are actually the times when I've drawn so much closer to God. It's in those times when I'm stretched, but I know that I see that He meets the needs that I have. James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it Pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Pure joy. Come on, James. Pure joy, honestly. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Challenge is good. Hmm. Challenge is good. Now, this is potentially my favorite verse that I'm going to read out next in the Bible. Proverbs 30, verse 8 to 9. In fact, Laura made a little plaque for me with it on. 
Um, so yeah, bring that one up. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Man, that guy's got some clarity. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me my daily bread. Some versions say, give me the food allotted to me. Don't give me too much, because if you give me too much, I have a tendency to get arrogant. I have a tendency to get self-sufficient. I'm not going to need you if I have all the lusts of the flesh you know, fulfilled. Why would I need you? Because I would be so pleased with what I had, I wouldn't have a need, a spiritual need. I wouldn't have a, an awareness of my heart's need for you. Don't give me too much. I would, I would end up disowning you and becoming arrogant and self-sufficient. But don't leave me hanging out to dry. Don't let me become impoverished that I become so desperate that I become immoral because I am so in need of some comfort and some sustenance. Don't give me poverty. Don't give me riches. In fact, give me what you know I need. Give me my daily bread. Give me what's allotted to me because actually, you know what? You know what's best. Instead, I will rely on your sustenance, on your providence, your daily bread. Such clarity, such wisdom that guy had. I love it. It's such a different kind of message or a prayer than I hear so many people pray or, or myself. My tendency is to be more, more, more. You know, little is good, so more must be better. That, that silly fallacy. And really, what we see through seasons, just the physical seasons, is that actually there's a rhythm and there's a cycle and there's a cadence, there's a, there's a pattern. It's not simply 24-7, 365 days a year summer. It's actually not God's intention. But instead something a little bit more complex and a little bit more balanced. That writer embraces the seasons. He embraces that balance that God wants to bring. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to explain away all the tragedies and hurts that you've gone through. I'm not trying to make simple what is not simple. But what I'm trying to say is that above all of that comes a God who is good and a God who is worth trusting. And what I also know is that from my own experience that the hardest times have sometimes been, well, have been the times where I've grown the most. I don't know if I'm at the time, I don't know if I'm ready to yet say I'm thankful for some of those times, but I know that they have been the most, that I, when I've grown the most, when I've developed the most. This writer also understands that there is a time for everything. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, 
a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear down and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There is a time for everything and a season there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Now, you could get quite despondent at this idea that there is always change and there is always seasons. Thinking about a tree, for example, that loses all its leaves and how what a waste it seems. What a waste that it would, you know, throw away all that it had created that season. But actually... That's not what happens with leaves. I have a leaf. Just handily. Hello. And what happens with leaves is that before they they fall, the tree actually sucks back into it as much nutrients as it can. The first thing to go is chlorophyll, otherwise known as the green pigment in leaves, which is why the trees don't suddenly drop their leaves that are green. It actually sucks that those nutrients back, starting with chlorophyll. The leaves turn reds and yellows and browns because the green's taken out of them. And it stores those nutrients that it can in the roots of the tree. And it uses those next time. Cool, eh? It then forms cells between the, the joining of the, the leaf and the twig, and it literally severs it off. The cells make it dry and brittle, and naturally the wind blows the leaf off. The seasons aren't meaningless. They're not just sort of being uprooted and being changed for the sake of change. They are actually about growing and continual growth and building blocks and moving forward. Like, you know, like the tree that can actually grow beyond, it gets bigger and bigger each year, even though it does lose its leaves. It actually keeps growing further next time and next time, even if there is pruning, even if there is loss of leaves. It actually gets bigger despite going through winter. So I, you know, don't have this idea that it's simply change for the sake of change for the sake of change and it's meaningless. There's actually a continual work that God is doing in us. There are fruits that He is growing in us and character that He is um, building in us. We are going from glory to glory. And He is continually shaping us even as we go through those seasons. So my prayer for, for you and for me is that we can embrace what God is doing in our lives these, this year, that we can embrace the season that God has us in. And I pray that you would, your instinct would be to press into God, not to pull out, not to pull back, not to abort the process, not to quit the journey, not to get off the train in the tunnel, but instead to persevere in what he's doing. Think of the Israelites. They were so close to going from slavery to the promised land and they completely missed it. That's that's terribly sad. That God had this dream for these this, this nation. I will take you out of slavery and I will establish you. And yet they were so short-sighted, even with his care and his providence so evident. Yes, they were in a different time. Yes, they had been changed and, and their whole world would have been flipped upside down. 
But God was caring for them and providing for them, taking them to the, the promised land, and they missed it. I pray that you would pray the prayer in Proverbs, that you would trust God to provide your daily bread rather than seeking just you know riches or poverty. No doubt you're probably seeking riches. But that you would seek his guidance and you would trust in him that he knows what you need, that you can actually give him the control and the reins, that he can be the one that that decides and, and, and shows you what you need and what what is required. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me what you know I need. And I pray most of all that you would know that God, our God is a God of the third day. He is a God of the spring. He is faithful and he is trustworthy and he is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. I'll just get the band up. That would be cool. And yeah, I'll just I'll just pray. But um, once the band is up, we're gonna just go through a song called Desert Song, which speaks very clearly to these seasons. And most um, specifically, the the bridge says, "All of my life in every season, you are still God, and I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship." So let's just pray. Dear God, I thank you that you are trustworthy. I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you provide what we need. That instead of saying, this is what I need, God, or this is what I need, we can simply surrender and say, give me what you know I need. Give me that daily bread, that food that you have allotted to me. Because, God, we know that, above all, we can trust you. I pray, Lord, that for each person here, that whether they are looking forward to this year with excitement or with anticipation or with anxiety, God, that you would give them the confidence to embrace the season that you have given, that you have put them in, knowing that you are faithful to complete the good work that you have started in us, God knowing that you work all things together for the good of those who love you, knowing that there is a time for everything, every season under the sun. God, we trust you for this year. We trust you for these seasons that will come. We trust you that you know what you're doing. And we thank you, God, that you are a God of the spring, of the summer. That ultimately, God, that you will wipe away every tear. Ultimately, you will turn all sorrow into dancing. We know that that is your character. And so we put our hope in you, God. And we look forward to, if we are in those times, we look forward to to that change that you will bring about. Amen.